you know they've got they've got one thing going for them that uh, you can't beat anywhere else in the country. Uh, yeah, Coors. <laughs> <laughs> Minneapolis. Right. That was. You went from someplace where it's snowing to someplace it was miserably cold. That was a good idea. I say it wasn't that cold. It was pretty nice. It was like mid seventies, but still. Uh, I wanted I wanted to catch a Twins game, but that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, went out to Minneapolis for work. Yeah, three days. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Now, no, a, now you take how exciting that sounded, and you subtract a hundred by it from it, and that's basically my week. So, but no, I mean for the most part, my trip to Minneapolis was was good, was successful. Um, talked to a bunch of people, both developers and executives alike. Um, but yeah, right. So we had a couple weeks where, well, like two weeks ago. It, that whole week was exciting, and then this week was just pretty much dead. And we never okay. wait. We, we had we had an exciting week two weeks ago. Well, the world did, I guess. I mean, in between the Build 2015 conference and the Ruby conference and all the stuff that was been going on last month, actually. Oh uh, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff. And I've had nonstop people, mostly .NET developers, running into my queue, going, "Hey, did you see the stuff we can do now?" And I'm like, "Yeah, no." Oh my God, Microsoft listens. You know, I've, I've seen Bauer and Grunt before the Node community. <laughs> like, like, yeah, we've, we've been, been around a while. about five years now. Like, uh, that's the most prolific announcement that came out of that. I think they're all panicking right now because they what? don't understand this whole new dynamic deployment. No, no, no. So let's let's let's, let's 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 start from the beginning here. Well, IIS is not going to be the delivery platform anymore of their .NET applications, right? So that brings good because well, it's garbage. It's know, all it's, bloated, it's, you know. Like the whole, the whole concept of an application server has been dead for a long time, but they don't know that. Well, I mean, .NET was the last thing. Yeah. To about. Yes and no. Like there are still cases for an application server, right? There are still use cases for the application server, and there's still people who who use that. It's not very what Gartner would call mode two. Yeah, it's still the most. I mean, it's, it's still the most widely used way of getting web applications deployed, right? Now, with that said, there are lightweight application servers and there are heavyweight application servers. And IIS would be Buster Douglas after 30 years of binge eating. You did .NET with, just like I did for a long period of time too, but you also know that you know, NuGet was a really big deal for them. And it did, rep- yeah, it did revolutionize .NET. But at the same time, all those dependencies still had to get loaded on the web server and there could only be one set. So if you had all these different dependencies that were loaded, that was it. So you had to, you had to pretty much ensure that every deployment after that had the same set of dependencies and you didn't get it all out of whack. Right. So now, and, and, now they're understanding that the dependencies actually get deployed with it and they all run in like their own little Kestrel environment. They don't need all these references to be established ahead of time. And Yeah, I mean... It's a, big, the, it's a big deal for them, really. Yeah, but one of the benefits of NuGet was, you know, to have your dependencies kind of wrapped into a container, and uh, you know they're attached to your application. They're, they, you know, they get unzipped into a folder within your project, so that your project has those dependencies as part of its build process. Yeah. Um, and it just makes it. It basically it brings 1997 to 1999 Java package management to .NET. Yeah. Have you seen the new editor that they released, the new Visual Studio Code editor that they based off Atom? 
I, I, I saw pictures. I haven't used oh, it. Yeah, I, haven't played with it yet. Right. I, so I kind of ran away when they announced that it was only for ASP.NET. And of course, JavaScript and Node.js and stuff too. But I was looking for a, a solution to doing .NET on Mac or Linux other than yeah. Monodevelop and Xamarin. And I left sorely disappointed. They still make it so that Windows is the main developer. It has the advantage. Yeah, yeah is, Windows is the main developer platform for .NET in general, um, which is a shame because I think C Sharp's a beautiful language. Very, very awesome. Very powerful. Um, however, kind of being locked into Visual Studio kind of sucks. There still really isn't a really great cross-platform GUI framework for .NET, although Mono is working on one that's, that's kind of based on GTK Sharp. It's called uh, XTK or something like that. But it's it's still like, it's when it's wind forms. This was interesting to me because Node is integrated in the IDE. So they use Grunt and Bower. Right. So they'll use Bower for dependency management where you just create like a Bower as they should JavaScript file as they should. And then it goes to NuGet to get the stuff, which is really freaking cool. But then you have grunt tasks as well. And every task that you create in grunt automatically gets integrated in the browser. So you don't have to leave it to run it. And that is just blowing people's minds. So that's modern. That's like modern sublime and, you know, node and NPM package manager based development. And I noticed that, Human and NPM are starting to get involved in creating the templates for the startup projects for how to create them. And that whole landslide has gotten everyone just bamboozled. So it seems like in one year's time, every the same guys, dude, I swear to God, the same guys were in my office the other day asking me how to deploy .NET applications on MSIs are coming into my office today because now they have this new platform and they can't. <laughs> but that's Which a is, good thing, though. That's that, a that, really, that is, really good thing for them. It is a good thing. And, it's, I'm, I, you know, one would argue about five years too late, but, you know, it's a really <laughs> it's good thing. Um, but here's the thing with, you know, Yeoman and NPM, Grunt, Bauer, all that stuff, right, is how do you gain more market share than these trendsetters, who are using node who are using open source software like how do you gain more market share than that right yeah and the answer is you go after the .NET development because nobody's using well up until this point nobody was using bower and stuff to manage their dependencies they were going online copy paste in the javascript into a javascript file on in visual studio and calling it a day and and people have been doing that since asp.net web forms way back in 2000 and what 2005 2004, 2005, something like that. Anyways, well, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it, I think it's great, and and it, and it, and it's going to definitely revolutionize the architecture that you're going to see coming from .NET applications moving forward. That's where I want to go. Which is really, really great, right? Um, gone are the days of this monolithic DLL that you drop in IIS and it serves up all your all your stuff, right? Let's talk microservices. Let's talk separation of concerns. You know, let's talk, uh, you know, modularization, right? Let's talk cloud workloads. So, you know, it's great for that, right? And I think with Microsoft Azure, which is really the only way that .NET apps can ever get into the cloud anyways, right? Is unless you're, you're really hackish and, and are willing to, you know, go down that rabbit hole, go Microsoft Azure for your uh, cloud platform. That's what I want to talk about too, is they demoed the ASP.NET dynamic framework actually running inside of Docker now too, which is one of the reasons they the push behind Linux was so strong. Yeah, so SQL Server does not work in the cloud. It never will, despite what you do. It's, it's <laughs> despite not, what Azure wants you to believe. Like it's, SQL Server offered by Azure is actually a giant cluster of decentralized SQL servers that are running under a managed framework that you just have access to. You don't have to do any kind of DBA work. You don't have to tune it. You don't have to do any of that. It's all managed for you, right? So it's really, it's a DBAAS. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, that's how do you do mode one in the cloud? You do exactly that, right? You see a lot of people in .NET making the switch to NoSQL, Cassandra, CouchDB, MongoDB, even even uh, even going so far as doing like distributed key stores and just having a persistent key store thing in yeah. the back to kind of store that stuff. Um, Redis is leading that charge, aren't they? Redis, yeah, Redis. I mean, Redis is king of the distributed key stores, right? Um, for standalone, right? 
Yeah. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple ones, there's one for .NET that's distributed that works across multiple .NET processes and things like that. That's pretty cool. I can't remember what it's called. It was expensive as hell. Yeah. And you know, there's Gemfire, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff, right. That can do kind of distributed key data key store kind of stuff. But, um, but that's, that's kind of how you do workloads in the cloud is you have to have that kind of distributed nature to it. And I'm sorry, but SQL server is not a distributed SQL server, MySQL, MariaDB, you know, those, you know, RDBMS yeah, are just, are just, just, they, well, Postgres is a little bit different, right? Postgres is like this weird bastard child of the database wars that actually has turned out it's, it's turned actually, out to it's be actually turned out to be massively it. better right it so is. um you know you can actually do mongodb style uh sharding and replication with postgres these were the so. release notes on it and they're using some new keywords and some new sql methodology that's just cutting edge it's brand new here's what i don't like though you got all these new things they're all mysteriously geared towards Azure. Like, so if you look now, you, yes. can deploy, you can deploy an ASP.NET application on a Docker, but it'll only go to Azure because that's all that's built into Visual Studio. It's because it's, it's, it's not actually Docker. It's because what they do is they actually pull your application out of the container and stick it up inside of IAS or something like that, distributed. They yeah. haven't got to the point where I challenge anybody who hears this to actually go and research exactly what Docker is and what it does. And you will find there is no way in hell that Microsoft can support <laughs> Docker. It just doesn't. It, Not it, unless they it, own it a Linux kernel, we don't um, know. Yeah, unless Microsoft all of a sudden with Windows 10, it's now Linux. That what they do is you, know, you, you deploy it as if it was a Docker container. Really, it's just a Docker format, right? Docker is just a format for containers. It's not a technology in and of itself. It's built off of Linux's inherent ability to do containers called chroot, where you have a virtualized operating system within your operating system. And it's how uh, Linux distributions are able to actually fork on the same machine and create their own distribution of the operating system that they're on. How do you think Linux Mint comes out of Ubuntu sources? You know, right. they create an environment using chroot and they edit the packages and stuff like that. And they bundle that up as an image. And then now that's a live CD. Like that's that process of building that kind of environment for Linux is inherent in the core of what Linux was and is yeah. right. It yeah. goes all the way back. So what Docker does is just say, Hey, let's take that and let's use Git to track all the changes and only save the deltas. Don't have to save an entire image ISO live CD, but let's only save the deltas. That way, when you run it, you know, you run it within our little runtime and It'll use the deltas from the container, and then anything else that's not in that, it'll use it from the operating system underneath. Now, for Microsoft to say, oh, we support Azure, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'd, be, I'd be willing to bet money, and I'd be willing to bet lots of money, that all they're doing is you're creating a Docker image, you know, Docker format container, but there are no deltas. The only deltas are your application in it. Right. Yeah. So what they'll do is they'll extract it using Git because you can work, you can do that, you know, with Docker. They extract it using Git on some Linux box that they have running in Azure. They take the project out and they put it over and host it on some IIS server or some Windows server or whatever. And then boom, there's your application. Right. I mean, it's still a very fast process and it's, you know, still pretty efficient, but it is not docker deployment kind of stuff then one would argue you know there's no standards yet for that kind of stuff so what would what would constitute a docker deployment i mean yeah there's arguments to be said there it's still a very very new technology yeah so the real question is are we ever really going to use azure i mean as developers we don't really have a free way to develop on it we don't really have a free way to run integration testing on it to make sure our shit's going to run anyway so i know i personally and i'm going to drop names here i'll go to OpenShift any day of the week except for Sunday, and then I'll use Heroku for that. Because it's, right. free, it's free, I can test what I need to test, I can run a Grails app, I can run a Node app, I could run friggin' Jekyll bunch of static pages if I want to. I don't really need Azure, and if I do need it, like right now I'd love to test some stuff with ASP.NET, I'm not paying for that. This is not gonna happen. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of the reason why uh, HP Helion, you know, HP's cloud doesn't really work and this is exactly why, uh, you know, Rackspace's cloud eh, doesn't really kind of, I mean, it works, but it's more from an operations 
point of view, not a very, not a very developer friendly point of view, right? You have to establish a virtual network. You have to set up your IP masks. You have to set up your DNS. You have to set up load balancers. You have to set up virtual machines. I mean, that's cloud. Yes, but it's distributed virtualization. It's not, it's it's not nowhere near the same thing. Right. So they just get confused and they, (coughs) they, they really want to do platform as a service and just went, well, wait, there's more money in infrastructure as a service. Let's find a way to make them both look the same. No, they made, they went infrastructure as a service and then tried to do platform as a service. Right, because they think that it's going to get market share. I mean, well, they they I mean, you can upsell it, right? So you have to buy the infrastructure as a service, and then hey, now you have this platform as a service as a extra surcharge. Um, that's how Azure worked when it first launched, right? It has since tried to fix their image by supporting Linux, by supporting Node.js, by supporting PHP, by supporting Rails and things like that. But one would argue you you still have to set up your virtual networking, you still have to set up your DNS, you still have to set up your your virtualization environment within Azure, and there's no real easy way to do cloud-based integration on the quick, like you can with Heroku, like you can with uh, DigitalOcean, like you can with OpenShift and things like that, right? Even though these technologies are kind of built on top of that infrastructure as a service or a platform as a service, they didn't catch on to uh, the developer needs for the quick deployment, quick access, quick spin up and turn down that's required into today's cloud workloads. So they're going to get there. I, I, I'm sure they're going to get there, but there are other services that happen to beat them out on that regard. So you guys know the story about we were at uh, a conference and I chit chatted with the Microsoft Azure guy. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. And he was, yeah. And he basically was asking, you know, why don't you use us? And, you know, it's not free. Well, it's easy for me. So at the time there was no really good free option stuff. I mean, it still is kind of garbage, right? You get a 90 day free trial and everything from that point on you have to pay for. Well, other services, they give you small gears for free, right? So if you just want to do something and go, you can just do something and go. Heroku gives you some free gears. OpenShift gives you some free gears. DigitalOcean doesn't, but DigitalOcean is kind of that weird mix where it's kind of platform as a service, but it's also just virtualized hosting. It's still, I mean, it's still pretty good, but they're going to, they're going to, they're going to have some catching up to do as well. So I I have a lot of strong opinions about the cloud services that are offered. Yeah. I I would say we are in a renaissance. We are in a renaissance period when it comes to cloud computing, cloud workloads. We've gotten from that dark ages of what the hell is cloud to the Renaissance era of, you know, some really elegant, really elegant solutions. It's only going to get better. But Zach, are you actually uh, microphone working today? Looks like it. Hey! Anything, anything exciting in the development world on your side of the house for this week? Um, just a little bit of frustration of uh, how to improve things. I just actually sat down with my manager this week. We had a lengthy conversation because we're going to go through a, uh, uh, a transition process with one of our product lines where they're going off of CQ and they want to go for a third-party CMS being hosted somewhere else. There's some one-off applications that the third-party people will not be able to support. So the problem was that how are we going to be able to dump this out of CQ but still be able to keep it in-house? And so my manager brought up, hey, let's use cloud services. If we need, let's say, um, our election services, let's just spin up an instance. We're not going to need it for just for election time anyway, so why keep it on all year long? So just let's, let's go to the cloud one now. Well, when we were talking, we were actually talking about doing it uh, the first round, like a few years ago. Yeah. Going through Adobe's cloud was the easiest way to do it because yeah. not only not only then do you not have to do the, all this automation that you're talking about, but you had Adobe to back it up, and you know that reach backup yeah. companies is so going back to executives or sure. Yeah. So Adobe's cloud is actually OpenStack. Oh, cool! It's 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 an OpenStack cloud, but um, yeah. So Adobe's 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 cloud content cloud and stuff like that. It uh, it's an, it's an open stack it's an open stack cloud right, and so anytime you see these large AWS style clouds, 
it's 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 pretty much open stack right there's only one way to get that kind of flexibility and there's only one project out there that's large enough with enough support that can actually give you that right we somehow we drifted to AEM <laughs> so we drifted to Adobe CQ um yeah so let's go, let's go back on target because Zach we were halfway through our build 2015 stuff we kind of ah, we were halfway through we halfway, I didn't know we talked and you know we started it so and Azure I know it's amazing how time flies we talked let's about talk, Azure, but we didn't really talk about build. We talked about Docker stuff, but yeah, well, we're we're going to talk about Hololens now. Have you seen this stuff? Have you seen the Hololens effort that's Microsoft's putting out? Yeah. And let me let me let me tell you one thing too that'll just torque you before you do it. Everyone at the conference, and I'm generalizing because it wasn't everyone at the conference, but a, a lot of people at the conference were tweeting that see Google, this is why Glass didn't work. Is you tried to make it fashionable. These guys are trying to make it real. And I just don't really. Yeah, that it's not. Really. That's 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 not helping. You know, like yeah. So Hololens, this is and this has been in, in research for a long time, right? This goes back to the multi-touch research. This goes back to Connect. Now they had a, you know, Microsoft Research had this sphere that was mixed up of a bunch of projector systems and stuff in a rotating glass thing, and it was a sphere, and it was for doing hologram kind of stuff, right? And I think Microsoft came to the very, very smart realization that we aren't ready for a glasses-less, projection-less holographic system yet. Like, we're, we, we just aren't technologically there yet. Um, we are getting closer, but it's just, it's just not there yet. So here we have – so the HoloLens thing is, is really how do you – you know, let's strap a connect to your forehead – <laughs> and do Google Glass underneath. Yeah. And we'll embed we'll embed an ARM computer in it That's and nice. also support Wi-Fi, you know, display That's so nice. you can have a computer itself just doing the display and stuff. And 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 really really utilize uh, the AR research that that you know Microsoft research has done for the augmented reality stuff. And I think it's amazing. It's a it's a very very cool technology. Me coming from a multi-touch you know projectionist kind of background myself, I definitely think that it's really just going to be a niche product and it's not going to be that widely available. I think Oculus Rift is going to destroy them um, with their new CV1 because really there's only two use cases. For well, maybe three, three use cases for a holographic imaging display like the Hololens. One, gaming, and that's the biggest one. Number two is the AutoCAD, highly technical mechanical engineering kind of field, right? Where you want to visualize, uh, visualize your drawings in 3D and stuff like that. Make sure it matches to scale. It does things. We have a picture here of this guy watching virtual sports and looking at the temperatures in Maui. Like it's never gonna happen. It's <laughs> like that well, that that you that while well, that use case looks like hey, it's the next kind of smartphone kind of thing. It's not gonna happen, right? Um, it's gonna be games, like you see the augmented reality kind of uh, Minecraft kind of thing, right? You know, so there's gonna be games. There's gonna be the mechanical engineering kind of visualization of 3D AutoCAD drawings and 3D modeling and stuff like that. That's cool, but... um, and and I, I'm kind of lumping GIS kind of stuff in there too, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> it's this scenario is so not gonna happen. Yeah, and then the, the third, the third. No, 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 third... wait, wait, how about plumbing support? I think this picture is really important. I think that, uh... HoloLens providing plumbing support for women in their apartment is very important. Uh, all right, yeah. He, so he's talking about the the marketing the marketing gaffes on Microsoft's site for HoloLens. It, yeah, that's never going to happen. This, there is a picture of a woman who has the elbow pulled off of her sink in the bathroom, doesn't know how to put it back on. She's wearing a HoloLens, which is only one step shy of just being a glasses form of Oculus Rift. Right, that's how big it is on your head. Yeah. Her dad is being projected in augmented reality on the wall, and somehow he has written in 3D where to put the elbow in the sink and how to turn it. Yeah, that's and a pipe. That's a that's a pipe dream, right? Oh, that's funny. never gonna happen. No, I didn't like, get it. Tell you. It wasn't um, there the second time. Anyway. Well, let, let me let me play devil's advocate here. All right? Go for it. Uh, they're already doing similar things with medical doctors that are, are leading operations remotely. Doing something very similar. Sure. 
Both so, with mechanical arms and things like that. Like it's it's not drawing in 3D space than having another doctor being like, "Well, I just graduated medical school, medical school, time to operate on this brain." Like, dude, my, if my doctor talked like that, I would never go in his office. No, no. You know what I'm saying though. Like it's you no, you've been going to Colorado doctors. That's what I'm like You know what I'm saying though. So so the three use cases for HoloLens. One, gaming. And gaming's huge. You know, gaming's multi billions of dollars, you know, it, they could just just engineered it just for gaming and been like for Xbox One, HoloLens. And people right. would have lost their shit, right? Two is the AutoCAD, mechanical engineering, 3D modeling, GIS, you know, the very highly technical stuff that you need to visualize um, to really have a sense of scale, have a sense of depth, you know, things things that matter, right? Uh, and the third, porn. How much Oculus porn is out there? All right, so on the surface, none. However, oh. 3D movies that are engineered for stereoscopic displays are actually surpassing normal movie 3D movies that work on the Oculus. So, so like you can you can have software that runs on your computer that displays you know real D or you know real 3D or whatever uh, you know 3D movies, right? So if you wanted to watch you know say Tron Legacy in 3D, like you could watch it, right? And it kind of simulates the screen in 3D space, so you can kind of like look around and you know and all that, and, and it feels like 3D, right? But there are now more 3D porn videos than there are 3D action Hollywood movies. Oh. And and by, like, a lot. I'm kind of wondering how Gabe knows all this. Well, he has an Oculus, and he's probably... I've, have, I've got two Oculuses. I was one of the Kickstarter backers. I've been involved in imaging. It's also got 15 monitors, so... Yeah. How do you know that there's more 3D porn <laughs> for Oculus than there is for regular 3D movies? Um, <laughs> my Google searches are very, very good. No, I, I, I've, I've done searches and stuff because I wanted to build a collection. I wanted to build a collection of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to build a collection of 3D movies and stuff for my own Oculus. Did you see the latest Visual Studio um, features? What a segue. Well, what a segue. Uh, no, <laughs> I actually didn't even want to go to this topic yet, but I know that you know you, were, you built Minecraft for uh, some either your kids or somebody that you knew you were actually building a service for. Is really snapping in Minecraft support like native support in the Visual Studio. Is this trying to just annoy the shit out of me? Let's see if I can find the article, I'll put it up. Yeah. All right, so Microsoft bought Mojang. Microsoft owns Minecraft now, right? Even though Minecraft is built on Java, um, it's built on XNA for uh, the Xbox. So the Xbox, you know, live arcade version of Minecraft is actually a port from the Java back to XNA um, to run on Xbox 360. So Minecraft mod developer pack, and that's under yeah, that's Java. So 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 they're bringing back Java support via Minecraft mod. Well, explain this one to me. If you missed that announcement, then you probably missed the announcement that they're touting now that you can develop Android and iOS applications in Windows using Visual Studio. They're um, saying it's cross-compiling native. They're saying they're generating native code on the output. Right. So the .NET framework. So the, this is totally not research. By no, no, no. We would be learning this together if we went through this. But right. So. No, no. So, yeah. So here's the interesting. Well, Android has the NDK, right, which is the native development kit. You can actually write Android applications in C++. Here's what's really interesting. A few, I think it was two years ago, for Windows Store, for Windows Phone, there was the ability to actually compile .NET code down to native bytecode, right? To improve the performance of, you know, XAML applications and C# -sharp applications for Windows Store for Windows Phone, and it was because what was the version of the Lumina, Lumina between the very first one and and now? Oh Jesus! Um, I don't know. That that one in the middle, it just had horrible, horrible oh, garbage yeah. collection support and stuff like that. Like some of the apps actually were, ran worse on that. So they actually, so Microsoft went back to the .NET Core and added this ability 
when you're compiling for ARM to do this native compilation step that takes it from the IL code down to the ARM native bytecode. Um, so that same process could then be used also to do that embedding of the of the .NET framework and stuff like that to do the cross compilation to do Android NDK as well as iOS in a C++ variant with some Objective-C hooks for displays. So it's totally, totally possible to do that, right? And this is, I mean, this is speculation from somebody who's on the outside, but I'm, I'm, I'm be willing to bet that that's what they're doing. Well, the article is saying something about, did it actually come up on the screen? Yeah, I'm presenting, right? So they added support for Objective-C to Visual Studio, and then they added the ability to import Xcode projects. So it sounds like you're pretty close. So if they added if they added Objective C support to it, that means the Microsoft VC plus plus compiler now also supports Objective C, which yes. one would argue which one would argue that if they're at that point, why not just ditch the whole MVC plus plus compiler altogether and just go with C plus or the GCC or C Lang and add support for the .NET technologies in those compilers and embrace the open source. You know, they want to be this open source kind of we're hip, we're jive, we're in with the community kind of thing without actually supporting the community. You, you can say you're part of that community all day long, but until you actually commit code, you're just you're just another face in the crowd. But it's interesting that they're doing the Minecraft mods directly inside of Visual Studio. This leads me to believe that the effort that Mojang was doing to create a very mod-friendly API. So uh, you, you guys probably don't know this. Most people probably don't know this. But, you know, Minecraft was obfuscated Java bytecode, right? Um, a, a group of extremely talented people uh, at Bucket and, and, and other places decompiled Minecraft and actually made heads or tails of the obfuscated code. They created a wrapper library called Bucket or whatever, Craft Bucket or, or whatnot, that kind of does this mapping of the obfuscated code to common tags, as they call it, right? Um, for doing, you know, mappings of blocks and items and things like that. Mojang was actually saying, you know, hey, we're actually going to create an SDK for mod developers and stuff like that, 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 you know, make it extremely easy. And they actually went after Bucket, tried to sue them. And Bucket was like, no, like, we didn't, we didn't use any of that code. We, you know, we just kind of looked at the obfuscated code and just kind of poked at it and figured it out, right? And besides, you guys said that it was okay. We have written permission saying it was okay because the mod community is what made Minecraft so big. Now, when Microsoft bought Mojang, I wonder, I mean, this is a, this is a question for you guys or just open in general. I wonder if Mojang had gotten to a point where that framework was possible or even possibly even developed, just not released. And when Microsoft took it over, that they were able to say, hey, you know, let's finish out this framework and then make that the APIs of which these tools for the new Visual Studio are programmed to, right? So now you have this nice API framework for adding blocks, adding creatures, adding world types and things like that, adding effects, sounds and all, that's now exposed to this Minecraft mod toolkit project type, you know, for Visual Studio, um, considering that it's still Java. It's a, it's a, the Minecraft mod toolkit for Visual Studio is a Java application. It's a Java SDK based uh, DLL um, or library. Um, so it, it, it would definitely be interesting to, to kind of see the, uh, the genesis of that, right? But I guess, I mean, ultimately, I mean, the only people who really know are Mojang and Microsoft. And well, they're, they're being pretty open about it, but I don't understand like half of the article when I read it. So I probably are, would. They're actually, they actually put Java IntelliSense into Visual Studio as a part of this, which is, would be pretty awesome if they would. Just do <laughs> so they went, they went, they went back to, they went back to 2003 and we're like, wait, 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 this project <laughs> that we had yeah, that was running that, Visual Studio, Visual yeah. J Sharp, let's bring that back in. It they was basically a, a use flavor of Java, but Minecraft Forge is Minecraft Forge is the engine behind the development. Yep, that's that mapper library, Minecraft Forge. So yeah, all right. Yeah guy named Sam Harwell wrote this Java language support Visual Studio extension that's been out there for a while. They used it. They took the Eclipse JDT, wrapped it in, and uh, 
Aiden Brady's mechanism is now bundled in it, and somehow that those are the four pieces they sewed together. The mechanism mechanism is for uh, boot boot loading in your your mods, right? So, uh, mine uh, Minecraft Forge um, was basically a way to inject Java bytecode in the application. So it's basically injecting the Java bytecode from your all your mods into the oh, application. And then running that jar, you know, um, so it's the way that you install, you know, uh, FTB or the Feed the Beast mod packs and stuff like that for, for, for Minecraft. I know this because installing that son of a bitch on a server is a pain in the ass. Whenever, whenever you set up a server that has, that's not running vanilla, that's running some sort of uh, mod, you're either going to be running with Craft Bucket, so it's a vanilla-ish server just has some extra stuff in there for like world protection and permissions and stuff um or you're going to be running a uh, minecraft forge server um to bootstrap in mods for minecraft but i digress this is not a gaming <laughs> this is not a gaming podcast i do have a theory about this this mod pack um i think it's maybe i have a theory my theory is of everything well, no, I think this is the first step in Microsoft developing other mod packs for the rest of their games. But do you think they could they could get people? I don't know. I they could get people coding. Somehow so, this is somehow this, this is representative no, no, no. of this the is, open source community. They're yes. them needing those people involved in their projects. This is like a way to lure them into. No, it, are there it's, really it's that partially. many Minecraft modders, though? Yes, there are wow. thousands of them. Thousands of them. So they're what they're doing, what they're doing is they're trying to take the, and most of them are young people. Either the most of them are between the ages of fourteen and twenty-two, right? Wow. So they're trying to get these young programmers into Visual Studio, used to Visual Studio, and then hooked. Like, I mean, on I'll, I'll be honest with you. I love Visual Studio as an IDE. I think it's the most powerful thing ever created. It's fantastic. But I have I have spit out that Kool-Aid because of that vendor lock-in. Because yeah. the fact that you up until this point, unless you're doing a C++ application, you're you're locked into Windows. Like there's no there's nothing else in there that you can do that's that's not going to be Windows centric, right? Um, yes, they've added support for some other web frameworks out there, like Node and things like that. But yeah, but they had to release a completely different IDE to get that support. I was just going to bring that up. You well, there's there's a that's did, why they had to make another editor. There, no, there's a module there's a module uh, extensions and stuff for Visual Studio that gives you that Node support, but not of that integrated. Oh, you're not, talking about just being just, able to write those. Just yeah, different. just being able to do like because. You know, Visual Studio, ha Visual Studio has really great JavaScript IntelliSense. Yeah, it does. Um, and it, it has the ability to scan all JavaScript files in your project. And one would argue that, you know, node modules that you install in your node project are still part of your project because they're in the folder structure. Yeah. So as it, as it recursively scans for all JavaScript files, um, it can build that IntelliSense uh, basis for that. But... Um, but no, what, what they're doing is they're trying to lure in young developers and get them hooked on the Visual Studio, get them hooked on the Windows platform, because Minecraft is still predominantly played by 87% of their players on a Windows machine. They're drug dealers. <laughs> yeah, hook on, get, yeah the, get, the kids, get the kids hooked. But this is, not a, this is not a precursor to them adding mod support to all of their games and stuff like that. This is, this is just so that they can get those people who are programming mods with Java using Sublime Text, TextMate, yeah. uh, Notepad++, and things like that to get them into a, a, an actual IDE so that they can force feed other Microsoft products to them via that start that start window. And have um, them market it further, yeah. Right. Well, so, wouldn't you want to make a mod for like uh, Battlefield or something? No. I, I, yeah, that's why I wanted to ask Gabe. That's the whole reason I put the question on there. It's because I don't is, know how many is, Minecraft developers there are, but apparently Microsoft doesn't do it unless they, th they think they can grab a shit ton of people. Yeah. In it. So there's about there's a I would I would I would have I would have to argue that there's probably about ten thousand Microsoft mod creators out there, of which a thousand of those Microsoft 
or of those Minecraft mod creators are mods that people actually use, right? Or, or you know, use in a case where it's on more than one server. Right. Um, with the largest one being the guys who are involved in the FTB or the Feed the Beast uh, mod packs and stuff. So you've got Dire Wolf mod packs, you've got the Feed the Beast mod packs, you've got, you know, so the, the those mod packs are so popular that the mods that make up those mod, mod packs become the most popular. Um, so those developers are those others upper echelon developers. You know, the ones that are in their own right now. Yeah. They, yeah, they, absolutely. These things, you know, create factories and, and like, it's, it's just, it's so robust. Um, some of these mod packs and what they can do and what they add to Minecraft. Um, you know, if you want, you basically, I mean, you can do automation and, and do uh, computer programming in Lua on a little, you know, 16 by 16 screen in Minecraft and, and power redstone circuits and create automated yeah. robots within Minecraft, you know, I like it's no idea what you're talking about. It's 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 cre it's create it's crazy what how creative the Mi Minecraft community has has become. It and it's only because of the exposure of the, what uh, Mineforge and things have done to create a nice framework for people to create mod packs with on top of that obfuscated Java bytecode. Zach, your thoughts. No. <laughs> Another game that we have no idea. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm over here. I'm over here in left field. You guys are still at home. No, actually, you know what? If Frank was on here, he could talk to you about it too because his sons are big addicts too. And I mean, I'm, I've they've even wanted to mod before, and I'm just like, yeah, don't ask me. I, don't I mean, I when I bought Minecraft, it was in alpha back in 2010. I bought it for two dollars and fifty cents. Nice. Um, you know, and and the only thing you could do is is run around breaking blocks with your fists. All right. No, yeah, we got to get off. <laughs> we got to get off this topic. So I'm going to show you something that's going to start a whole nother one, right? So let me put myself back in a presentation mode. I don't understand this at all, and I'm hoping maybe Gabe, as a avid supporter of this product, you can explain to me why we would want to do this. Yeah. So this the is actually says for yes. the podcasters read it for them all right so windows 10 is coming to the raspberry pi 2 for free right now microsoft and this this happened when this happened when apple announced mavericks was going to be a free upgrade um microsoft was like you know free operating system you know like why like how how would they make any money any kind of money and it's no longer a war of who can sell the most uh money you know selling operating systems it's really just about market share right right um they they now have realized that it's the operating system which enables one to use a platform that's funny um, you say that though because I, I, microsoft's whole spiel to build 2015 i swear to god is cross-platform compatibility that was the right. running pitch right nowhere in there do they mention oh and by cross-platform compatibility we mean making all of your platforms the same so our shit will run on it that's well that's basically what hang on hang on now now i do i do definitely think that what microsoft is doing with windows 10 is definitely on the right track Right, we have making it making it so that it can run on ARM, it can run on x86, it can run on small devices, micro devices, you know, things with with very very strict memory footprints, and that leads me to believe. I was going to ask you, do you think it's a Linux kernel? Do you, do you really think it is? No, no, I don't. Come on, I, I definitely, it's I definitely, be. no, I think it's a Windows kernel. So they, you know, Windows, Windows has been able to itself. Windows has been able to run on ARM since Surface, right? right. With Windows RT. So I think what they've done is they've taken the Windows RT team and they've taken the Windows Core team and the Windows Server team and just merged them in and been like, share share as much code as possible. Let's get one unified kernel. And then we can and then we can kind of compete with Linux and things like that, where they actually have a very robust kernel that runs on all these different architectures. Right. Now so I'm I will say that you know the direction that Windows 10 is going is a step in the right direction. However, and here's the giant asterisk on the end of this statement. Um, when you, you know, even if Windows 10 is free, the process of which you would install applications 
via Windows 10 on an ARM device is still not in line with the hacker space. You still have to go through the Windows Store. You still have to be signed, you know, signed content and signed drivers and signed applications and things like that. That is not maker friendly at all. So let me and throw the Raspberry Pi is is pretty much the maker's, you know, the maker's bread and butter, right? Right. It's running the Linux kernel on a microchip on a uh, system as a uh, system on a chip or SOC. Um, so by by, I think honestly, Microsoft's announcement of Windows 10 running on a Raspberry Pi 2 is really to take those people who are like, well, I'm scared of Linux uh, and, and allow them to be makers as well. But aren't they will not gain any market share whatsoever with those hardcore people who have been yeah. using Raspberry Pi for a while. Can they even gain it with the other people? Because there's so much no. um, there's so much libraries and help out there for new people that get started on Raspberry Pi. It's all in freaking Python. Are they really right. going to attract anyone now? And if they so, how many years does it take before they build this Windows so. archive? And then what? Why didn't they just stick to their own Netduino shit that they had in the first place? I mean, so that was here's, a here's, here's some no, no, no. who wanted to write on that code for that kind of stuff. Yeah, here, here's here's some homework for you. Okay. The Microsoft.net micro framework. So several years ago, Microsoft partnered with a company that created this system on a chip kind of architecture that was really just about as powerful as an Arduino um, that ran .NET micro. Um, so you can actually program and .NET on a, you know, on a, on a microprocessor to do electronics projects. Now, it never really took off because there was a lot of, uh, you know, EULAs and license agreements and things that, you know, there's a lot of red tape involved with, with getting started on that. And the hardware was a, it was a lot more expensive than the alternative, being an Arduino Uno or a Raspberry Pi. Um, so... Yeah, Microsoft.net micro framework, and I think this push to bringing Windows 10 on a Microsoft or on the Raspberry Pi 2 is to also say, hey, now you have .NET micro support. So what do you yeah. think, Zach? Windows 10, Windows 10 on a Raspberry Pi is, is Microsoft really just? Is it just? Are they just picking up on any internet? No, here, here, here's here's just what I gotta say about that. I've been reading some rumors this past week about that very thing. Oh, okay. Uh, there's some speculation that once a person purchases Windows 10, they won't ever have to buy another operating system again. They will always get rolling. upgrades after that. That's rolling, it. rolling updates. They're going to a rolling yeah. release schedule. Yeah. So if that's the case, then that kind of supports Gabe's idea of, of you know, it's a good thing having Windows 10 on Raspberry Pi because once you have it on there, you don't need to go through that process again. You'll just subscribe to updates. Right. Well, and then that actually goes into the Internet of Things as well. If everything's all interconnected, then, yeah, you, why, why do you need a new OS? I can see that. Then they're trying to position themselves to conquer everyone with that. But here's, so here's, here's what I would argue, right? So uh, one, of the, one of the main things that people love about Linux on Raspberry Pi is their ability to actually edit the source code, right? To change the boot up, you know, boot up logos or the boot process or, you know, have it launch directly into their application. I mean, arcade machines are built that way, right? But yeah, like I, so I think if, if Windows 10 really wants to take on the maker's market by the Raspberry Pi 2, they need to actually have a way for us to be able to customize our boot process, be able to customize our boot startup screen, be able to customize our boot shell environment and things like that. Like allow us to tinker in the maker, maker world like we can on Linux. Not necessarily saying like release the source code to it, but allow us with hooks to kind of change these graphics, change the colors, change the feel, maybe change some animations or whatever, you know, have some of that customization and that theming support for a Windows 10 uh, operating system running on a Raspberry Pi 2. And then I think it'll be actually be, it'll actually be welcomed by the community. All right. Next topic. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, I just have a tendency to just diarrhea of the mouth. And, hey, uh, I'm a, I sit here and listen, and if it's good information, I, I constantly think about interrupting, but then I'm like, if you're listening to this podcast and you're driving to work in your car or something, you probably want to hear all this, so I, I don't interrupt. Yeah. Again, like, I could have a podcast just on talking about the differences between open jail and direct acts. Because that shit changes every week. We probably yeah. should. We can we can spawn more. It's it's really just. I don't have time. I don't have time, dude. I you got it down so, Yeah. Uh, I, I might I might I might do some I might do some visual tutorials like video tutorials and stuff like that that yeah. kind of explain maybe kind of explain that and then maybe have like a tutorial series that kind of dives down each one. Um, yes. But again, time. I mean, I'm so swamped with work that. Uh, I don't really have that much time, and we have to move. So. Yeah, that's right. June first, you get it, which would be nice because then you could actually get your mics out and set up your studio. Yeah, yeah, it'll be nice. I'll get all that stuff out. And we'll go ahead and end it there. Of course, you can tell this is being edited after the fact by me, and I am sorry for the crappy audio on that podcast. I will never use Google Hangouts again. I promise you that. But from Programmer versus World, it's been me, your host, Jeff. Gabe, our co-host, and Zach was on with us. And that's our episode two for May 16th, 2015. You guys have a good one. I'm out of here. Peace.